Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now we come to this last section in Genesis 11. Really, the, you know, the book of Genesis, it's the book of beginnings or the book of origins. And as we've looked at these first 11 chapters, we've already seen so much in terms of how this world came to be, that God himself created this world in six literal days. We saw how the man and the woman were created. We saw how the institution of uh, marriage came about, that it is God who made the institution of marriage, and that too for his own glory. Then we saw the, the relationship of the husband and wife and how they are to live for God's glory. Then we saw how sin came into the world and how the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, then has been passed on to the rest of the humankind. And yet we saw that God uh, had a plan for this world and for mankind. And that is to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come down into this sin-cursed world and deliver mankind and reverse the curse that came on this world so that he would get the glory and this whole earth will be filled with his glory. And yet, what we see is, even as God has promised that, that the sin of man is rampant. And it continues to move on. And as we, come to, uh, as we came to Genesis 6, we saw how the whole world was filled with sin and violence. And how God looked at all the world and... and And then he sent his judgment in the form of a global flood and wiped out all of humanity except for Noah and his family who he saved through the flood. And then they came out of the flood and and there we saw of how uh, God institutes even the very origins of government, of of law for the protection of uh, mankind, to restrain evil. We saw how God restrains even the violence of wild animals again so that human life would flourish so that mankind would ultimately live for his glory. And then we saw last week as to how by the time we see Noah and his family as they multiply and grow, all of mankind is still rebelling against God. And under the this fierce and violent man named Nimrod who founded the city of Babel. They decide to build a city and a tower that will go to the heavens to make a name for themselves. And even from there, God sends down his judgment and confuses the language of mankind and they're dispersed and his plan is still moving forward. And so as we come to this passage, really, it's this last section of, I guess you could call it as the universal history of the world, 
before we get into chapter 12 onwards to the end of the book of Genesis, which is the, the, the patriarchal history. So this is the last section of this universal history, and, and really this section serves as a bridge moving on to this next section of the patriarchal history. And here the, the focus will now narrow on to one family. And really, even as we look at these two genealogies that are mentioned here, again, we are reminded of something of God's character. We're reminded of how God works despite the sin of mankind. And I pray that this would encourage us even more so as we understand how God works to live for him and to live for his glory. By way of outline, it's just really as it's seen here, just two points where we look at the line of Shem in verses 10 to 26, and then the line of Terah from verses 27 to 32. So let's first of all look at the line of Shem, verse 10. says, these are the generations of Shem. So now this is, again, a new section in the book of Genesis. Because if you remember, the book of Genesis is divided into different sections based on this phrase, these are the generations of. And it points to how God is going to bring the promised Messiah through these select generations of people. Here's what one commentator said. Quote, he says, these headings, that's talking about the, these are the generations, these headings have the effect of binding the whole book of Genesis together and focusing our minds on the promises of God. They act as a major signpost, as major signposts encouraging us to look forward to the fulfillment of God's purposes for this world. Genesis highlights the importance of seed or offspring. It is therefore most appropriate to have this introductory expression drawing our attention to a family line. The very structure of Genesis calls us to look to a seed that God will use to gain victory over the devil and his offspring, end quote. So really, it's this phrase, these are the generations of, it's moving from one person to another, and it's tracing that line where ultimately it'll end up in Jesus Christ. And it's causing us to continue to trace that line. So this is a new section in Genesis, and we are told in this section, in verses 10 through 26, about the line of descent from Shem, the Shemites, the Semitic people. And why Shem in particular, and not the other two sons of Noah? Well, that's because of what we saw in Genesis 9, that when, God, when Noah blesses his children, and when he blesses Shem, he particularly said, if you remember, blessed be the Lord, God of Shem. 
And what he was saying there, or at least by implication, he was saying that God had entered into a special covenant relationship with Shem. That God had so deeply associated with Shem that he was willing to be called as the God of Shem. Even as later we will read in the book of Genesis where God enters into covenant with some of the other patriarchs where he will be called as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Here he's called as the God of Shem because he is in this special covenant relationship with him. And here's the interesting thing. The name Shem actually means name. The very name Shem means name. See, the people at Babel, the entire human race, they were wanting to make a name for themselves apart from God. But really, God is the God of name. He's the God of Shem, is what this passage is implying. And through this line of Shem, God's name will be blessed and shown to be great. And indirectly, the the Shemites, and through this particular line, the, the people belonging to this particular line too, would be made great as well, indirectly, because of their association with God. Because God has chosen this line to move in the direction, to choose this line, and through this line, bring about his promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at this genealogy from Shem to Terah, it's very similar to the, uh, at least in some ways, very similar to the genealogy of the godly line of Seth in Genesis 5 that we looked at a few months ago. Like in Genesis 5, which had 10 generations from Adam to Noah, here there are 10 generations from Shem all the way down to Abram. And there's also the mention of each person having other sons and daughters, just like in Genesis 5. And similarly, just like in Genesis 5, this genealogy ends with a father with three sons. Now, in light of what we looked at last week, where the nations are now divided up with different languages and they're scattered over the face of the earth, This genealogy here now in Genesis 11 is moving from that global scene, from the nations, to focus on one man and his family. And the genealogy is, it's it's moving from that promised line from Adam to Noah, that is from the garden to the sin-cursed world that is before the flood, and here it's now connecting the pre-flood world That's where Shem came from, and it's going to connect to the post-flood world and how God is going to carry on that promised line and how the promised Redeemer would come. So again, looking at verse 10, 
It says, these are the generations of Shem. And it says, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Now in Genesis 10, we saw that Shem had five sons. And during this time, when you think about it, uh, especially in, in this day and age of biblical history, the firstborn son was particularly important because the firstborn son would carry the responsibility for the family and would carry on the family forward. So the firstborn son was given a lot of importance. But you know what the funny thing is here? Only Arpakshad is mentioned here, and he's not the firstborn son. And, and, and you'll see in this genealogy, many of the names that are mentioned here of the promised line, they're not the firstborn sons. And what it's showing is that this has nothing to do with birth order. But it, it, it has everything to do with God's choosing. What it's showing is a narrow focused genealogy that God has chosen a particular line according to his own choosing and through this line, Jesus would come. And it says, two years after the flood, Shem fathered Arpachshad. It's putting it into, again, a historical time frame that this actually happened during this time, two years after the flood, to keep track of history when it actually happened. And when you think, you know, God sent the flood because the whole world had become sinful and was living in rebellion against God. And even though God says that man is still sinful after the flood, there's still hope for mankind. See, God doesn't abandon his promise that he made in the garden that from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. And what we see here is that while Shem had other sons, the birth of Arpachshad is particularly important because Arpachshad is the particular one that God has chosen and it is through this line the promised seed would come. And so God's plan is moving forward. Now verses 12 through 15 reads, when Arpachshad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah, Shelah, and Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber, and Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. Now we know from Genesis 10 that Eber... He's significant because we saw that from Eber is where we get the term Hebrews. And this is what the Israelites were called after this man, Eber. 
And one thing you will notice also here is that there is now a dramatic decline in the ages of the people. Remember, in the pre-flood world, the lifespan of the people were up in the 900s. You know, 940-something and 900 and whatever. Uh, you know, they had a very long lifespan. But as we look at the first few generations after Shem, what we see is they're living only up to their 400s. There's a significant drop from the 900s to now in the 400s. So why? Well, because it's because of the curse. Remember, in the earlier chapters, we looked at the fact that Adam and Eve, they were perfect human beings. That they were created without any sort of genetic mutation or anything of that sort. They were just perfectly created. But because of man's sin and God's curse came into this world and death and decay came into the picture, then at the genetic level, decay and mutation started taking place. So with the passing of each generation after Adam and Eve, there is an increased genetic mutation and decay happening. And so if then those who get married are closely related, these genetic mutations become more prominent in the children because the father and the mother would carry the same mutations and that would be passed on to the children aside from the mutations that the children themselves would get. So when you think of by the time of the flood, there's millions of people around. So people weren't necessarily marrying close relatives at the time. But after the flood, there's only one family now. God starts again with Noah and his family. Now already for this family, there's already been a lot of decay and mutation at the genetic level. So the next generation now would have to marry within this family because there's no other human beings. And so because they're close relatives, there's going to be more mutation, more genetic mutation for the ge next generation. And this would explain why then the lifespan of the people significantly drop compared to the pre-flood people. Because after the flood, humanity started again from one family that already bore the effects of the curse at the genetic level. Now verses 16 through to 19. It reads, when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, if you remember again from Genesis 10, it said that Eber had two sons, Joktan and Peleg. 
And in Genesis 10, the genealogy then goes down the line of Joktan. But that wasn't the chosen line. So here the Peleg's line is continued to trace out this chosen line. And if you remember, this name Peleg is also important because the very name Peleg means division. He was named Peleg because it was around the time of Peleg's birth that the division and the scattering of the people from the Tower of Babel took place. So again, like in the time of the flood, During the Tower of Babel, mankind is living in rebellion and sin against God. Yet, God doesn't wipe out humanity. He doesn't abandon humanity. No, God judges them by confusing them with different languages and scattering them. But God is still faithful to keep his promise. Even when mankind is not faithful to God. Because his promised line is still moving forward, despite the sin and rebellion of mankind. Now verses 22 to 26. It says, when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Neho, and Serug lived after he fathered Neho 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Neho had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Neho lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Neho, and Haran. So this genealogy now ends with Terah with his three sons, including Abram. Now one last thing that I want you to notice here in this genealogy is that the lifespan declines again. If you look, there's a, there's a dramatic drop after Eber. From Peleg onwards, where before that it was in the 400s, then it drops down to the early 200s and then to the 100s. And you say, why the drop again? Well, because of the dispersion at the Tower of Babel. See, because if the dispersion and division happened just before, just before Peleg's birth, just before that division happened, then you can understand why there's a drop. Because now there are people that are scattered and smaller communities of families together again. So again, now there's close inbreeding within families. So again, there's further genetic mutation happening. So suddenly, the lifespan is going to drop again, just like right after the flood, because God started with one family, which bore the effects of decay at the genetic level. But here's the thing, though. Despite the lifespan of the people dropping here, unlike in the genealogy in Genesis 5, which had this refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, 
that is actually absent here, markedly absent here. And the point is this, what this genealogy is trying to do here. That even though the lifespan of man has significantly shortened because of man's sin compared to before the flood, the genealogy is moving towards the hope and promise and blessing of God in a fast forward way. That's what it's showing. There's no other distractions. It's just showing how that promised line is moving forward despite the decreasing lifespan of man because of man's sin. And what this shows is this, that the sin and rebellion of mankind, even the scattering and the confusion of mankind will not be able to thwart God's plan and promise. See, each name here is a link in the plan of God. Each name is a line that is adding to the big song of God's grace to bring about his promised savior. Each name is a chain in the plan of God and God in this way is sovereignly bringing about his plan and his purpose. But here's the thing. What is remarkable about this section, about this genealogy here, and especially for us who live so many thousands of years later, is that in one sense, it's very unremarkable. That is the remarkable thing. That is, it, it is very unremarkable. There's no, nothing spectacular happening here. Nothing dramatic happening here. It just seems like a bunch of insignificant names to us, but we must not forget the fact that God is very much at work here. And a lot of times, this is how God works, isn't it? I mean, even in the Bible, yes, there are some spectacular events, there are, you know, but those are selective, uh, you know, highlighted areas where God is working. Like, for example, of how Noah and his family were rescued from this global catastrophic flood in the ark. Or like how the Israelites would be saved uh, through the parting of the Red Sea. Or how the sun and the moon would stand still for Joshua in battle. But those are very specific, spectacular events that are recorded. But, but we also know that not everything in the Bible is, is spectacular. In fact, not every single moment of the people's lives are recorded, which, by the way, would not have been spectacular. But that does not mean that God is not working. And it's the same for you and for me. See, sometimes our lives can seem so mundane, so ordinary, so blasé even, and yet we must not forget that God is still at work. You see, we, 
we live in a society that is so focused on, on feelings and, and grand experiences. So much so, if we're not living in this experiential high, then, then something is wrong. And so the people turn to different things, whatever it is that catches their fancy, so that you know, they'll have this emotional high. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to remind ourselves that we are not to live according to our feelings and our experiences. But we are to live by faith according to what we know to be true from the Bible. And what we know from the Bible is that God is always at work. If you are a Christian, here's what I want to tell you. God is at work in you and God is at work all around you, whether you realize it or not. In the mundane, everyday things of life, he is still at work. It might not be anything spectacular. I don't think any of these people in this line knew that God was at work. God knew it, and God knew he was advancing his plan, but possibly no one else knew at that time. As believers, we should remind ourselves of this fact. In fact, even actively look for ways in which God is working in and around us. And as we do that, we begin to appreciate the grace of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of our Lord in the everyday of our lives. Because God is still at work. And this confidence that God is always at work will only cause us to live for him even more. Because we can depend on him. Because he hasn't stopped working. He hasn't abandoned his people. So God is very much at work in the ordinary and the mundane just as he is work in this genealogy with a list of unremarkable names. So that's the line of Terah. Now let's just look at the line of, sorry, that's the line of Shem. Let's just look at the line of Terah in verses 27 to 32. Verse 27 says, now these are the generations of terror. So again, this is a new section. And really, in this section, there's, there's a brief genealogy, and, and then for the next quarter of the book of Genesis, it will expand on this, of what became of terror and his family, and particularly focusing on the life of Abram. And really this short section even serves as a context to the the beginnings of the life of Abram, the great ancestor of Israel. Because it is through Abram that God will raise this great nation of Israel to be a blessing to all other nations. So you could even say this section uh, in its it's giving the context or the beginnings of how the nation of Israel came to be. What was the beginnings of the nation of Israel? 
Now verse 27 again to 29, it reads, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of Chaldeans. And Abram took, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the na- name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. So Terah, who's now from the promised line of Shem, he has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, Nahor most likely would have been the oldest because he's named after his grandfather, Terah's father, is also named Nahor. So most likely, Nahor is the oldest. But in the list of the three sons, Abram is mentioned first, not because he's the oldest, but because he will have the most prominent role. And we see Haran, the And what we see here is Abram's brother, Haran, he dies early. It says he died early in the presence of his father, Terah. And we're also told that uh, Haran also had a son named Lot. And Lot essentially takes the place of his father, Haran. And we know then how Abram takes Lot under his wing and they travel to Canaan and then as the story moves forward. But Lot is also significant for another reason as far as Israel is concerned, because it is from Lot then the Moabites and the Ammonites would come, who would be great enemies of Israel. Then the other brother of Abram is Neho. And it says that while Abram's wife was Sarai, Neho took the orphan daughter of his brother, Haran, and her name was Milcah. In other words, he marries his niece. Now, this is again important, Neho marrying Milcah, because as we move forward, what we'll see is the grandchildren of Neho and Milcah will be Rebekah and Laban. And who's Rebekah? Rebekah will become the wife of Isaac, Abraham's son. And Laban's daughters will be the wives of Jacob, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel come. So these are very significant names from the family of Terah as far as Israel is concerned. But here's the most important thing that we need to understand. Terah he was not a believer of Yahweh, the true and living God. He was an idol worshiper. Just turn to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2 for a second. Joshua 24 and verse 2. It says, this is what Joshua says to all the people of Israel, reminding them of where they came from.
Joshua 24, 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abram and Nahor, and they served other gods. So what you need to understand about this family is that they were a family of idol worshippers. In fact, the place where they lived, it says it was the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the southern part of Babylon. This was a very prosperous city in that day. And it was also the chief center of the worship of the moon god. In fact, the name Terra is also associated with the moon god. And you can, you can imagine if this name Terra was given to him by his parents, perhaps even Terra's parents were idol worshippers. And then even the name Sarai and Milka. Now, Sarai means queen and, and Milka means princess. Now, in this day and age, if you name somebody queen or princess, it doesn't mean anything. But in that time, in that ancient pagan society, in that pagan culture, that Near Eastern uh, religion, those names of queen and princess were not normally named for uh, women or children, unless, of course, it was associated with this moon god, with idol worship. So what you begin to understand is that this is a family that is steeped in idolatry. Abraham, his sons, and and even the people his sons have married. And you think, wow, this is the, 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 the chosen line? I mean, the chosen line is not even following. I can understand everyone else, but this is the chosen line of God. They're meant to be the faithful people. Yes, this is the chosen line. But what you see is the sinfulness of man and they're deep-rooted in idolatry. And if that's not enough, verse 30 adds a little note here. It says, now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's almost like a passing statement, but it's very emphatic because it repeats the plight of Sarai twice, as if it was not enough to say that she was barren. The author goes on to say she was barren and she had no child to really emphasize the point. And, and what is this? This is part of the curse that is working out. Remember in Genesis 3, as part of the curse, God told the woman that there would be issues in childbearing and childrearing, And this is one of the effects of the curse, barrenness. So when you think about this, okay, so this is God's chosen line. And what seemed to be a good start for Terah and his family having three sons, now from a human perspective doesn't look good at all. One son has died and they're deeply entrenched in idolatry and there's even barrenness and apparently through Abram is now the, the line that's going to come. From a human perspective, this doesn't look good. I mean, how is the promised line supposed to continue through Abram through all these hurdles? 
Now verse 31 reads, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now he said, so why did they leave this place they were in, Ur of Chaldeans? The text doesn't explicitly say. But I want to take you to another passage and it might shed some light for us. Look at Acts 7, verses 2 to 4. Acts 7, verses 2 to 4. This is Stephen speaking. And he says this in Acts 7, 2 to 4. And Stephen, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia. Notice, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So what this tells us is that God appeared to Abram while in Ur of Chaldeans before they moved to Haran. That God called Abram to leave the land of Ur and to go forth to wherever God would show him. So it would seem that somehow Abram persuaded his father Terah to leave Ur. And though and so they move from there. They move from Ur of Chaldeans. Now Genesis 11 also indicates that they were supposed to head to Canaan. Now I don't think Terah or Abram knew where the final destination was. Because God simply said, I will show you the land where you need to go. This is more likely writing from the perspective of the author of Genesis who knew where everything was going to take place. So I think the scenario would be something like this. Abram, God appears to Abram to, to leave the land of Ur. Abram now persuades his father Terah to leave the land of Ur. They pack up and they leave and they they travel north along the river Euphrates because everything on this side, on this left side, is the Arabian desert. So, so they're going upwards north and they reach Haran. And this place, Haran, in the north, it, it's a crossroad of trading routes. It's another popular city. And guess what? It's also the second largest center of the worship of the moon god. So Ur of Chaldeans, which is really Babylon, was the center of the worship of the moon god. Now they've gone to the next place as they've traveled north. So, the, so I would think, given the prosperity and the comfort at Haran, 
The fact that it was another center for the worship of the moon god, and perhaps even the fact that Terah was old in age, all of this meant that, you know, Terah finally, when he got to Haran, he, he just so liked the place in every sense. He said, I'm not leaving from here. No, I don't, I don't want to keep moving forward. I don't want to just keep traveling and just go wherever this God leads because I don't know where the next place is going to be. So I'm going to settle here. So the text says that Terah and Abram and Sarai and Lot settled in Haran. Did you pick up on that word, settled? Why is that important? Well, if you remember what we looked at last week in the Tower of Babel incident, it was a big issue, wasn't it? That the people settled in the plains of Shinar instead of going and filling the earth. So what the text is showing here is now Terah and his family with Abram and Sarai and Lot, they are not living according to God's purposes. They're still deeply entrenched in idolatry. They're just still thinking about their comforts. And now they're settled in Haran, really casting them in bad light. Verse 32 says, And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Terah died in Haran as an idol worshiper, as someone who lived for himself and not for the purposes of God and his glory. This is a very bleak picture of the promised line of God. I mean, how is this family going to be of any use and advance the purposes of God and become a blessing to others? I mean, this line is steeped in worshipping the moon god and there is even barrenness. How is the promised line going to continue and God's promise going to come about? How is God going to make a great nation for himself and whose descendants will outnumber the grains of the sand out of this family where apparently there's even barrenness? How will this idolatrous pagan family become a great blessing to all the nations when they themselves do not follow God? How is God going to do this? You know, if it were up to you or me, we'd look at this family and say, no, this is definitely not on the top list of families that I would pick and choose to do my bidding. This would be the most unlikely candidates that anyone would choose for anything. In fact, even the world, they, they wouldn't pick people like this. They would pick the most accomplished, the most capable. Similar to perhaps even when we looked at the incident at Babel, where people depended on the fierce and gregarious and mighty hunter Nimrod. But God is not like that. God chooses the weak, the foolish, the powerless, and the insignificant. 
See, God did not choose this family because they were great. Because they had great potential. No, God chose them precisely because from this weak and lost family, God's power and God's grace would be magnified. And God will call Abram out of idolatry by his grace because he is still faithful to keep his promise. In the midst of idolatry, in the midst of sin, in the midst of barrenness, God is still faithful to keep his promise. From Adam to Noah and now through Abraham, Abram, God would bring about the great nation of Israel. And through Israel, God's blessing would come to the nations through the promised seed, Jesus Christ. This is all according to God's plan and purpose. God's not thinking, oh, this was my promised line and oh, they've really messed it up. Now what am I going to do? No, God is completely sovereign over everything and this is all according to his plan. And through this unlikely family that he has chosen, God's name is going to be glorified and his plan is going to move forward. And it's the same for us as well, isn't it? For those of us who are Christians. I mean, there wasn't anything great about us. We were just as lost. The most unlikely candidates as far as the world would, be, would consider us. And yet God showed his abounding grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ where Jesus came into this world and died on our behalf to pay the price for our sin, bearing our curse, bearing the judgment for our sin. Why? So that his power, his grace, would be magnified in and through pitiful creatures like you and me. so that we would have then the privilege of being part of his family and be used by God for his name's sake. I wonder if there's anyone here today that is not a Christian. I want you to understand this first and foremost. We Christians, there's nothing great about us. Absolutely nothing great about us. In fact, we're just like you apart from the grace of God. Exactly the same apart from the grace of God. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, but I don't have a great upbringing. Maybe my family is messed up. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not that accomplished or so great. I I don't think I'll have any use in God's kingdom, so why would God save me? Maybe you see the sin 
that you've done and you see, oh, I've done so many sins, such great sins. I don't think that God can save me because I'm nobody special and everyone else seems so much more better. Well, let me tell you, friend, as one theologian said, it is exactly this kind of person that God loves to save. If you'd like to know more about what it means to get right with God, if you'd like to know more about Jesus and what it means to follow him, please come and talk to me or Donnie or one of the members of our church and we'd love to speak to you further. As for us Christians, oh, God is faithful, isn't he? Despite our frailty, despite our sin, God is faithful to save us and he will carry us to the end. And so the more we realize our state apart from the grace of God, the more we realize our lost state apart from him, the more we will see God's grace and God's power in our life. And we will see even more how God continues to be faithful to us, to keep his promises and where he's pushing his plan forward to save a people for himself so that ultimately his name would be glorified. What a wonderful and faithful God we serve and it is him who we worship this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great and wonderful and faithful God you are. Despite man's sin, despite man's rebellion, you are still faithful to your promises. And you have determined that you will save a people for yourself so that this whole earth will be filled with your glory. And we thank you, Father, that you are in the business of saving pitiful, sinful, rebellious, wretched nobodies. Because in doing so, and as you work in and through us, we become trophies of your grace and trophies of your faithfulness. And for this, we are thankful because there really was nothing about us and it was all about you. Help us to live in light of that. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here listening today that does not know you, that they would turn from their sin and turn and put their trust in Jesus and what he has done. Father, we give you all glory and praise and we do all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.